Let me talk to you a little bit more before we get into the text tonight about, about revival. We talked last night and uh, understand that what has to happen is that decisions about change are made in our lives individually and corporately. That's what makes these meetings productive for the glory of God. That's how we move forward as a church is when we make real decisions about change. It can't just be that we came here and enjoyed it and laughed a little and sang a little and went away unchanged. It cannot be that. Revival is something that I mentioned to you last night. We've forever been saying we need revival, and we've forever been having meetings and you know, doing all of those things, and yet here we are saying we need revival. So I want to talk to you just a little bit, and your pastor and I talked this afternoon some, so uh, where does revival come from? What does it look like when you begin to experience it as a church? There's really some, I think, misconceptions, and I think there are a couple of theories, if you will. I kind of hate the word, but I hope you'll excuse it tonight, about how revival comes. And one of them is what some call a a sovereign act of God. That revival would come to a church when they're sitting, you know, around in their routine, really not necessarily seeking the Lord. I mean, let's be honest about it. I hope it's not true, but it's possible to do much of this and never even consider the Lord, isn't it? I mean, just the doing. And God just sort of drives by. There's no uh, heart cry. There's no effort on the people to draw nigh to him. Nothing like that. That's not required because it's a sovereign act of God. And God just, you know, drives by one day, happens to be on his annual inspection tour of the churches in St. Joseph, Missouri, and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to pour out revival on Riverside Baptist Church. And you don't do anything. You don't even know it. You just suddenly are here and bam, revival. And I think that a lot of us think that way. You may not use those terms. And when it's explained to us, we might think like, I'm not sure that makes any sense. But I'm telling you that if it doesn't make sense, uh, and if it's not true, then there's something that we're missing pretty bad. Because we are always needing revival. So I'll also tell you that this sovereign act of God idea for revival is not true doesn't come from the Bible. So if you're waiting for revival by sitting here saying, I hope one day God is kind enough to give us revival, you'll never experience it in your life. Here's the second idea. It's a divine response of God. And this idea goes this way. That a people, a person and a people, begin upon hearing the word of God, to realize that the practical truth of their life is is that there is a distance between them and God. That they're here and God is here. I didn't say they are what they used to be, right? That is not your measuring stick, by the way. How far you are from what you used to be is not how we decide where we're at in our spiritual growth. It's how close we are in intimacy and obedience that demonstrates it with the Lord. 
And the people hear the word of God and, they, and their heart begins to change. They begin to, to say, you know what, I'm here and God's here in the, just the living of my life. I, I know the theory, I know the theology, I know these truths, but when it comes to everyday living and responses and all of those things, I'm on this path really and God's over here. And they begin to turn towards God and say this, can't live like this anymore. I, I realize the, uh, the affront, really, the insult it is to God for me as a blood-bought child of God to walk in my life really without being in very close, intimate relationship with him. That's an offense to God. And those people begin in brokenness to repent and seek God. And here's what the divine response of God there, he says, or idea says, is that God responds to their turning to him. And now, that now, uh, as they draw nigh to him, he draws nigh to them, and he begins to, uh, to to transform them as they would seek him through the word of God, and he begins to uh, do some work through them that only he can do, because now he's got their whole heart, uh, mind and will and emotions. It's the divine response of God. And listen to me, church, that is a biblical theory or idea of where revival comes from. You say, what do you mean biblical? Well, James chapter 4. Draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you. And all throughout Scripture, this is a truth. It's stated lots of different ways. But God is simply willing to call you to make the way for you to come to him, but you have to make the choice to begin to turn to him. And when you begin to seek him, you know what he says? You'll find me. Yep. So here's what that means. That if we need revival, the one thing we are not waiting on is God. In fact, the opposite is true. The one who most wants revival at Riverside Baptist Church is our God. And he is waiting on you. He's waiting. I'm not talking about making decisions so that we can somehow remain the same. I'm talking about realizing the distance and making whatever decision it takes for me to begin to walk with God in great intimacy so that God can do what only God can do in me and through me. Everybody understand? Take your Bible and open to the book of Numbers in chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, I'll draw your attention when you get there to verse 10. Numbers 21 and verse 10. You find your place, of course, as is your custom, Stan. Bible says this, Numbers 21, verse 10. And the children of Israel set forth and pitched in Oboth. And they journeyed from Oboth and pitched in Ejabarim, in the wilderness which is before Moab, toward the sun rising. And from thence they removed and pitched in the valley of Zared. And from thence they removed and pitched on the other side of Arnon, which is in the wilderness that cometh out of the coasts of the Amorites, for Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Wherefore, did you catch that? Wherefore. 
Because of all of this, so thus, wherefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, what he did in the Red Sea and in the brooks of Arnon and at the stream of the brooks that goeth down to the dwelling of Ar and lieth upon the border of Moab. And from thence they went to Beer. That is the well whereof the Lord spake unto Moses, gather the people together, and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing ye unto it. The princes digged the well, and the nobles of the people digged it by the direction of the lawgiver with their staves. And from the wilderness they went to Matanah, and from Matanah to Nahaliel, and from Nahaliel to Bamoth. And from Bamoth in the valley that is in the country of Moab to the top of Pishka, which looketh toward Yeshimon. Father, I pray you'd help us tonight. We've talked all about walking on your path, staying on that path, overcoming by who you are, putting markers in our life that we can use to navigate when circumstances of life want to get us off the path of walking with you. Those markers are who you are and how you act, what you do in our life. We've talked all about it. It's not a matter at this moment whether we understand the importance of choosing a path and staying on a path. It's a matter of whether tonight we have the willingness to very deliberately choose a very precise path. That path being the one that you walk on and that we follow you and how we do that in our life. Lord, tonight... I would ask you to to cause us not to consider whether we will follow you in the way that we'll learn. But Lord, that we'd only ask that you'd help us to do that, having set our face and determined with our will to walk with you. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing tonight. Well, in the sitcom world, the text we just read left you with no resolution whatsoever. (laughs) In fact, it's a little bit of an odd text, I think, probably when you read it and you go like this, huh? And I understand that. Because I did the same thing. I've probably read the text uh, who knows how many times in my life. And sometimes, you know, you read things in the Bible and you go like, Okay, well, when we get to heaven, we'll figure that one out. But God does intend for us to study and rightly divide the Word of God. And this text puzzled me. So I took time to try to put it in its sort of context. Where were they at and what were they doing and why were they doing it? And here's where we find them. I'm sure you already know this, that we're finding them on the end of the 40-year wilderness wandering. This began over really in South Canaan 
where they had uh, come up to the promised land, sent in the spies, and, and uh, the spies came back and said, wow, it's a great place, but there's big people there, and we can't possibly do it. And you know that whole story, and in fact, we'll look at some of it in a little while. And they've been wandering now for 40 years. Wandering is, you know, a fine term, but they really were moving at the uh, direction of God everywhere. I don't know if that's really wandering. But God was, uh, you know, doing what he said he'd do in their life, and they and they were making this journey. And now we find them, uh, they have to go all the way back down to the Red Sea, to the to the Gulf of Aqaba, really probably near where they crossed out when they came first out of Egypt. They have to go all the way back there because the Edomites, I guess it is, won't let them go through their land. They make this huge journey, and where we find them is on the east side of Moab, up there in that wilderness, and that's really what's described to us. So they're kind of coming in uh, on the home stretch to the place where they'll uh, cross the Jericho River and uh, begin to take on Jericho, uh, the city of across the Jordan River and begin to take on Jericho. Well, actually, they don't take on Jericho, do they? God did that completely. And so we have some geographical markers in the text that we read. They might not mean much to you. You can find some of them on a good Bible map, and some of them, they're probably too inspecific to to really come out in most maps, but you can find several of them. And they tell us this, that, that we pick up the story where they've been on this journey for quite some time, and they come now around the end of the uh, of uh, the the country there of Edom, and they and they go uh, you know out into the desert, and they end up. It just tells us this on the side of Moab, verse eleven, which is before Moab, toward the sun rising. That just means this: they're to the east, right? Moab sets here, and they're toward the sun rising, and the sun always comes up in the west. Amen. Just seeing if you're awake. I already knew that. Thank you very much. And so all it's doing is sort of narrowing us in to the place, but the place matters. They're really surrounded there when they're out there. They're kind of weaving their way around the borders of countries, all of whom are somehow related to them as a people, and whom God had said to them, don't touch them. Uh, the Edomites, they were out of Esau. And God had said when Israel came, no, you can't, you can't defeat them. You can't take them. That's their land. I promised it to them. Uh, you know, leave them alone. We know that at one point they end up under tribute, but they're still there. The Moabites, the first daughter of Lot, uh, the offspring of her. And, and God had said, don't, you, you can't take them. And, and, uh, the, uh, uh, the Ammonites, the second daughter of Lot. And they're in a place where uh, they're not to be attacked and overcome and all of those things. And then you have the Amorites, and the Amorites are really just the Canaanites, and they're the ones that are ultimately going to be defeated in this whole uh, process of taking their land from them. And so they're on the east side of Moab, and maybe it doesn't mean much to you. It's uh, somewhat fascinating to me. And they're making their way through uh, this territory or a very difficult time, trying to kind of walk a narrow road, if you will, uh, not to go to the places that they shouldn't be going and not to do the things they shouldn't be. And they're just following God. He's leading them by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud by night, and they're going along the way. 
And all of that is fine. We read about them going to Oboth and then to Ijab Barim and, uh, you know, uh, east of Moab and the Valley of Zared. That's a river. Okay, it's a river valley. You can find that if you look at your maps. Not during this service. You look at me, but you know. Uh, but if later you look at it, the Valley of Zered, the Zered River, is the southern border of Moab. You can find that easy. It's a pretty good sized uh, terrain feature, and and probably somewhat of a challenge to cross with a million or so people. And and so they went to there, and they camped there. It says, and they went uh, from Zered and pitched on the other side of Arnon. Arnon is another river. And the Arnon River is at this point in history the northern border of the country of Moab. And it uh, runs down and it, it creates this, this huge uh, valley. I mean, just it's huge. It's, uh, it's an issue today for people in that part of the country. And it says that they, that they go there and it describes that, that it's uh, you know, on the border between the Moabites and the Amorites. But then verse 14 says something that maybe not you, but I hope to, it confuses you in a minute, okay? Uh, it says this, wherefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, what he did in the Red Sea and in the brooks of Arnon and at the stream of the brooks that goeth down to the dwelling of Ar and lieth upon the border of Moab. And from thence they went to Beer. And it almost seems like these two verses are completely out of place here. Because first of all, it says, and it says in the book of the wars of the Lord. And you know what that means, right? Because it says there was a book of the wars of the Lord uh, that they're talking about here in the Bible. It means that book is missing from the Bible, right? Yeah, we're going to go on a big search for it. Somebody's going to do a documentary. They're going to find it, and they're going to say, now we have the complete Bible. The baloney. We have the complete Bible now. And could I just say this? This is an aside. The Bible references a multitude of writings that are not inspired writings. And it can do that without ever affecting inspiration. The Bible quotes Lucifer and is still inspired. Amen? So don't get hung up when you read this like, oh, there's a book of the wars of the Lord, and if I don't have it, I'll never know what God did, and I don't know if I'm going to write, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. No, don't get wrapped up there. I'll help you out with that. Do you want to know what was in the book of the wars of the Lord? Okay. The wars of the Lord. No, 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 that matters. But that's what's in there. It's a book of poems and such about the wars of the Lord. Can I tell you this? You don't need the book of the wars of the Lord to understand that. And you really don't need the book of the wars of the Lord to understand this. That our God is a warrior God. I mean, there's a book written about his wars. And there's his wars in here. In fact, in the book of Exodus 15, after God divides the Red Sea and they cross on dry land and they get over the other side, they begin to sing a song. You say, preacher, why do they sing a song? Well, that's what Jewish people do. They sing, but, um, uh, but they begin to sing a song. And in verse three of that, it says, you know, that the Lord is a mighty warrior. You, you know this about God. Don't you let the, the modern idea that if anything said about God does not equal 2020 mushy dumb love, 
that it's not true. I'm glad tonight that we serve a God who is an undefeatable warrior. What good would the miktams be if we could be defeated walking with God? Those monuments would have no purpose in your life. Our God is a warrior God. And so the book of the wars of the Lord uh, record uh, some of these events. uh, It's apparently long gone. I'm glad that it's long gone. It'd just be one more thing I'd have to buy and realize it's junk. But But still I'm confused. Because in that book it seems to say, it's quoted here, that what God did at the Red Sea he did at the brook of Arnon. That one, that one, that's a little harder for me. Let me explain to you why. Because I know all about the Red Sea crossing. So do you. We know what direction the wind was blowing. We know what Moses was doing. We know what the people were doing, murmuring, complaining, and crying. We know what the Egyptians were doing. And we know what God did. We know the conditions. We know that it was by everything you can understand in the Bible, not an ankle deep sea, but it's a deep sea crossing. Amen? That when God did this, it was like this powerful miracle. And that not only was the dividing of the sea a miracle, it was, and the taking of the people through, that's amazing. But God used that event to destroy the greatest army in the world that day. I mean, he just wiped them out and delivered his people on the other side and said this. Listen, folks, when it comes to wanting to do battle, when you do battle with me, I'm the warrior God. And I always win. And in fact, you read all throughout the Bible that when uh, the Israelites are uh, maybe wandering, when they're doubting, when they're questioning whether they're going to follow God, you know what God constantly does? He does it in the Psalms. He does it in the, in the historical books. He even does it in the New Testament. You know what he says? He says, hey, don't forget the Red Sea. You remember what I did there? You remember how I like parted the water and, and killed the Egyptians and took you safe on the other side and you didn't lose anything? They lost everything. You didn't even get muddy boots. Hey, don't forget that. And yet here, here God says, you know what I did there and here. And there's this equivalency drawn between the activity of God at the Red Sea and whatever God did for them at Arnon. Because we don't have the same sort of detail in that story. It's mentioned a couple of times as they move forward and, in fact, mentioned by name and somehow this event. But even when it's mentioned, it doesn't rehearse the details like we have at the Red Sea. No one has ever made a popsicle stick rendering in Vacation Bible School of the crossing of the Brooks of Arnon. Never been done in flannel graph. And yet God says, what I did there and there. Well, what did God do? What was the same? Wasn't the size of the body of water? Wasn't even, I think, equivalent sizes of the armies of the enemy. 
God didn't, as far as we can tell, wipe out an army like the Egyptian army there. Can I tell you what he did do? He was absolutely faithful to be God and the warrior God. And that when they went with him, he delivered them from whatever obstacle was there. And if you read forward from where we read tonight, you find they kill Sihon, king of Og, and the king of Bashan, and they actually take, uh, as they would follow the Lord, all of the land on the east side of the Jordan River that ultimately became the territory of the two and a half tribes that stayed over there. And God didn't part the Red Sea. I don't know what he did to the water at Arnon, but here's what I know what God did do. God delivered his people safely to where he wanted them to go, and he defeated their enemies along the way. God was God, and God was the warrior God here, and God is the all-powerful God here, and God is the unchanging God here. I mean, come on, you got to be getting a little bit like, woo, right now, okay? Because God says, let me tell you what it was like. It was nothing perhaps on the scale of grandiosity compared to the parting of the Red Sea, but I'm going to tell you this, it took as much of me uh, to deliver you over and as much of you to follow me through this as it did through that. And I gave you just as much victory. You went through that unscathed, they went through this unscathed. I'm the one that fought the battle. That's what God really did there. God went before them, and God defeated their enemies along the way. And they didn't defeat them because of their military might or their great strategic cap- uh, capabilities. They defeated them because God said this, I'm the warrior God. And as far as we can tell, listen closely, as long as they're with him, they'll never be defeated. And the only time they're ever defeated is when they stand back from him and don't allow him to be the warrior God in their life. That's what God did at the Brooks of Arnon. He continued to be the God who in all of his might delivered them no matter how hard or impossible it looked. He defeated their enemies and brought them to victory. Well, preacher, that's a great story. I thought so. I studied hard. It fascinated my brain. Doesn't take much, but. So, what does it have to do with us? We hear a lot of talk about this. Uh, God is with me, and so all is well. And that's true, but I, but I want you to learn this tonight. It's not really about whether or not God is with you. This is all about whether or not you are with God. Those are two different things. Can I tell you this? If you're with God, God is with you. But if you're not with God, 
God is not with you. No, I didn't say you lost your salvation. What you lost was the warrior God. And now you're trying to go into all the things of life. And you're, you know, you're trying, I mean, come on. You're trying to raise your family and and do, 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 do it somehow so they turn out to be disciples of Christ. And yet, you know, God's way and his path is over there. You're walking sort of on the, your own path trying to get there. And listen, God did not leave you. He's always been true to this. I'll never leave you nor forsake thee. God never leaves you. Do you understand tonight that where you find, and we should have found it already, that there's a distance between us and God. God didn't create that distance. You did. And if you're going to go with God, if you want God with you, that means this, that you have to go with God. I mean, this is pretty simple, isn't it, really? But it is not this. Please get this straight. It is not like, God, where were you? That's never the question. The question always is, where am I? Because it is not so much about God being with me. God is omniscient. He's uh, omnipresent. He's all of those things. He'll never leave us. This is what it is all about. If I am with him. So how do I do that? How do I... How do I walk a life? How do I live a lifetime of being with God? And not just assuming on God that whatever I do, he's with me. But instead, follow him. The book of Numbers, I think, helps us with that. I want you to go back with me to Numbers 14 very quickly. We're going to kind of skip through the chapter just a little bit if we can. If you go to verse 6 with me of Numbers chapter 14. It says this, And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we have passed through to search it, is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. You say, aha, preacher. No, 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 stay with me. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. Let me stop reading there with you. We're going to jump forward a little bit in a minute. But you already know all of this, but let me remind you, God brought them to Kadesh Barnea on the border, let's say the southeastern side of the, of the, uh, of the promised land, the land of Canaan, down in that, that Negev, that desert that's there uh, uh, still today. And he brought them to the border, and they sent in spies, and the spies went in. You know this, right? And 12 men went to spy out Canaan, and 10 were bad, and 2 were good. You know the song. And they came back, and they said, it's a phenomenal place, but we can't go in. And so they came, and they said, we're just not going to do it, and we're going to refuse to go. They say, man, our children, if we we go in there, they're going to kill our children. They're going to do all of those things, and so we're just going to refuse to go. 
And Moses here and, and Joshua and Caleb are, are begging them, please don't do this. Please don't uh, go a different way than God. Just follow God. Listen, they're bred for us. God's a warrior God. But they still refuse to go. If you skip forward with me quickly, to, I don't know, let's go to verse number 39. Well, let's go to verse 29, and we'll just read a few, but... It says, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. God is, now, God is now dealing with them because of their refusal to obey him. Because they wouldn't go in. He says, you're all going to die in this wilderness, verse 29. All that are numbered of you according to your whole number from 20 years old and upward, which have murmured against me. Doubtless, ye shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein. Save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, which ye shed should be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years, and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. So they come to the land, and they refuse to go God's way. They say, we're not doing it. The risk is too high. It's an impossible task. And in all of that, you do understand that what they're really saying is, God's not able. Can't trust him. And God's response to that is an appropriate response. He says, if you won't, uh, if you won't obey me, well, you're not going with me, and I'm not going with you. And you're going to die, all of you. And none of you are going to go into the promised land because you don't think right now that I'm able to deliver it into your hand. And your children, the ones that you say, oh, they're all going to die, they're going to live. And they're going to go into the promised land, but none of you, 20 years old and up, are going to go in. And so it's just really clear the truth of the matter is, is that God spoke and they disobeyed. And when, when they disobeyed, God responded to them, and, and he responded to them in, in judgment. In verse 39 of this chapter says, But Joshua the son of Nun, I'm sorry, and Moses told these sayings unto all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. So what God had said to Moses and uh, Joshua, I guess, and Caleb probably, hey, listen, they're all going to wander. Moses now turns around and says to the people of Israel, hey, you need to know this, that God has decided this. Since you won't obey him, you're going, you're going to die. Your children are going to wander, and none of you will ever see the promised land. None of you will get to the place that I have determined to take this nation and my people. And so verse 40 begins to get actually quite interesting. It says, uh, and they rose up in the morning. They were, they were mourning in verse 39, and they rose up early in the morning and gathered them, got them up to the top of the mountain saying, lo, we be here and we will go unto the place which the Lord hath promised, for we have sinned. And so they get up in the morning and go, oh no, we're not going to miss out on this. And they go up to the top of the mountain. I kind of, again, I kind of get a kick out of it. They go, hey God, We're here. We've decided that you have the authority and power to tell us what to do. And so we'll obey you now. And Joshua step or Moses steps in, verse 41, and says, Wherefore now do you transgress the commandment of the Lord? But it shall not prosper. Go not up. For listen to this the Lord is not among you. That ye be not smitten from your, before your enemies. 
for the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and ye shall fall by the sword, listen please, because ye are turned away from the Lord, therefore the Lord will not be with you. The problem here is they got, not that God left them, it's that they left God. And he said, if you leave me, you'll go up all on your own. If you want to do this on your own, you're going to fail on your own. The question is not, is God with me? The question is, am I with God? And so they went into the land. It says that, verse 45, the Amalekites came down and the Canaanites, which dwelt in that hill and smote them and discomforted them, even unto Hormah. They're defeated and many die. One reason. God said, go this way. And they said, we'll go that way. When they realized there was a problem with this, they said, oh, oh, we'll go this way. But God had already made his determination. And it was really too late. Learn this tonight, number one. How do I walk with God? How do I live a life where I stay in an intimate walk and relationship with him? Here's number one. In order for you to be with God, It requires obedience to God, listen to me, at the first opportunity. The whole time you debate about what you're going to do with God is is not you with God. That means this in our life, that we hear something or read something in the word of God and we realize that we're not equal with that, we're not obeying that, or we're not being that, and therefore we have a distance between us and God. We need to understand this. The way that I get with God and have an intimate walk and stay in that intimate walk is that when he speaks, I obey. No delay. When he speaks, I obey. You say, preacher, you mean, uh, you don't think I should take time to pray about it? (laughs) Yeah, let's do that tonight. Dear Father, we know in your word you told us to draw nigh to you. Would you please teach us tonight whether we ought to draw nigh to you or not? There's not a there's not a thought of prayer that you need. When God says this is it, in the word of God, go this way. There's no need to pray. What are you doing? Saying, uh, Is there a plan B? If you want to be with God, if you want to go with God, hey, if you want revival in your life and in your church, hey, if you want to grow your children into disciples, hey, no, no, I'm listening. If you want to impact those people around you that need Christ, can I tell you something? It begins with going with him and staying with him. And that requires every time that I obey him at first opportunity. And honestly, if you think about it, it's kind of silly to do it any other way. God's really been tugging at my heart about talking to my neighbor about Christ. I just wish you'd pray for me that, you know, that, you know, if I really determine that it's God's will, that I'd talk to my neighbor about Christ. I'm not going to pray for you. You know how you know it's God's will? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Obey.
that first opportunity. Let me give you the second thing. I want you to turn up to chapter 20 of the book of Numbers. When we get here, once again, the people of Israel are murmuring. They're saying, we don't have no water, any water. Why did you do this to us, Moses? And in verse 7, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so that thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. So we're clear on this. Everything we just read was a commandment of God to Moses, wasn't it? Do this, and do this, and do this. Gather the people, speak to the rock, right? And bring them forth. Bring forth water out of the rock. And so it says this. Verse 9. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. So he said, get the rod, gather the people, speak to the rock. And he goes and gets the rod, the rod of uh, the rod that was there. And he took it, the rod of the Lord. He took it out there just as he said. Verse 9. Verse 10, and Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. Then he said unto them, Here now, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod smote, he smote the rock twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. So God told Moses very specifically, didn't he, to do three things. Get the rod... Gather the people and speak to the rock. Everybody with me here? This is not hard. I know it's last night, so I'm going easy on you and, you know, not short, just easy. And Moses does this, doesn't he? He goes and gets the rod. Check. Gathers the people. Yeah, they are, Lord. And then blows his Cap. He says, do I need to bring you people water out of the rock? I'm telling you, if I'd have been God, I'd have stepped in right there and I'd have said, let me see you try. Go ahead, Moses, bring them water out of the rock. And he takes the rock, the rod, and he, boom, you know this, boom, hits the rock. And water comes gushing out. And all the people drink. And you might be sitting here tonight going, well, that turned out all right. I'm going to tell you, it didn't turn out right at all. Here's the problem. God had said three very specific things for Moses to do. Moses had done two, not three. And while God did give them water, what we learn in verse 12 is, and the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron, because ye believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This is the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. Do you know that this day was the biggest bummer day in the life of Moses ever? 
because he had gone into the backside of the wilderness. He had come back. He had in the in the presence of God, walking with God, confronted the Pharaoh. All of those things took place. The Pharaoh sent them free. Uh, they're out there in the wilderness. They'd crossed the Red Sea. They'd done all of these things. There's manna from heaven. I mean, I, you know, they're just walking with God and God's just doing this and doing this. And Moses stands up on the rock and he goes, God, what do you want me to do? I, uh, these people are murmuring. Well, go get your rod. Okay, I'll get it. And uh, gather the people. Okay, I'll do it. And speak to the rock. Just one thing wrong. Just one. Everything else was right. He just didn't do this. He did this his way. And God said this. Moses, you didn't sanctify me. You didn't set me apart and lift me up. You didn't obey me. I got the wrong. I gathered the people, and the end result was wonderful. Yeah, but Moses, you didn't take heed to my word. You see, it is only by the word of God that we obey God. The commandments of God for you to obey in your life are not found in the mystery of your mind or the difficulties of your circumstances, those things are navigated and put right by the commandments of God in his word. His instruction to us is clear. And the only way you and I can obey God at first opportunity is to also obey God completely. And that means to take heed to the word of God precisely. I mean, if God said, speak to the rock, what God expected you to do was speak to the rock. There are a group of people spoken about in the New Testament who uh, are gathered. It's spoken about in a, in a picture coming forward. And Jesus said to them, you know, that they come knocking on the door, uh, expecting to go into heaven. And Jesus said, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I do not know you. And they'll turn around and say to Jesus, yeah, yeah, but we got the rod and we gathered the people. I went to church. I sang in the choir. They didn't even like me. I was just stubborn. Yeah, but here's the problem. With the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Repent ye therefore and be converted. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, I mean, I'm pretty close. No, you're standing outside the closed door of eternity tonight because you're not taking heed to obey God according to the word of God. It might be, I don't know, because I don't really know much about it, but I've heard a saying that says two out of three ain't bad. Don't you buy that? If you want to be with God in an intimate walk and relationship, you have to obey God at first opportunity. And you have to take heed to the word of God precisely. 
Remember Sunday night we talked about renewing our minds and strengthening ourselves on the word of God intellectually? Do you want to know why? Because you can't walk on one path until your mind is set on him through his word. And if you don't renew your mind, you'll never take heed to the word of God precisely. We're kind of generic, big picture Christians in our day. In fact, for many of us, our spirituality is defined by what we don't do. That is not how you go with God. That is not how you walk in intimacy with God. If you want to get to the river of Arnon in your life, and the Red Sea, and all of the things that God needs to fight, the battles in your life, you need to be with God. Not God with you. You're not standing over here saying, come here, God. I need you now. You're coming to him and saying, God, you just lead and I'll follow. But you have to obey. You have to obey at first opportunity. That means the first time you read in the Bible, I should be this, you start being that. And the first time you read in the Bible, even, I should not be this, you stop being that. Well, but preacher, no one else is doing it. Yeah, I know, but I think we learned that if you're the only one doing right, you just keep on doing that. Isn't that what we learned? And you tell it to Jesus and you let God be God. Someone say amen. Amen. You want to know why? Because if you don't, you won't be walking with God. You'll be on another path. You'll call it a parallel path. Can I help you with this? A parallel path is not walking in intimacy with God. It's just moralizing. It's saying he's got some pretty good ideas. I think I'll adopt some of them. No, no, no. If you want to be with God, if you want to see God as the one that overcomes the battles in your life and that, and that brings revival into your church, I'm just going to tell you this tonight, that you've got to make a decision that you're going to be with him. And really that decision is really this simple, that everything I know God said, I'm going to do it. Obey. And I'm not going to wait for him to tell me again and pretend like, well, I probably didn't hear God saying that. No, no, no. It's written down in the book. You heard it. Uh, just obey. First opportunity. Don't be like, well, let me go check with my wife. <clears throat> I'm not against you talking to your wife. I think that's generally a good thing. But I'm telling you, sir, if you have to get her permission to obey God, you're not obeying God. I love my wife. I do. I don't need her permission to obey God. And if I ask her for it, she'd be like, whoa. (laughs) Yes, I'm an abused man. See, preacher, all you've talked about all week is obedience. It's because it's the decision that has to be made. It's not a generic decision. It's not a generalized decision. It's not like a, well, God, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. It's a, I know you said this, and I'm not this. And you get up tomorrow and look for more. And you get up the next day and seek him through the word for more. 
And every day for the rest of your life, you find out where there's any distance between you and God and what he says to solve that. And you obey God at first opportunity. And you obey him with precision. Take heed to the word of God. You say, preacher, there's some things I just don't understand. Study. Ask your pastor to help you. Because there is no, like, there's no tickets before the judgment seat of Christ that say, Hall Pass did not understand. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If you don't come out of this meeting understanding that we all choose the path of our life, and we either go God's way or we go ours, and that many of us are doing what we found Solomon doing, which is trying to walk two paths at once. If we won't see that and say, you know, the truth in my life is, is I'm hanging on to these things, I'm hanging on to these philosophies, I'm hanging on to these standards and thoughts of the world, and while I'm, what I'm doing with them is I'm saying, no, no, God, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. And you don't understand that God is saying, I want you with me. But you've got to get rid of all of that. And follow me. Our grave problem is not that we shake our fist at God. It's that we are so generic about our faith that we don't often walk in intimacy with God. You want revival? It's only when you're walking in intimacy with God. And you turn to God and he'll begin to help you. He'll be the warrior God in your life. And he'll help you to overcome. No, no, no. I didn't say he'll overcome them for you. He'll help you as you go along the way. And he'll say this. There's an obstacle here. Are you going to obey me or not? You're going to say, God, I don't know how to do it, but I'm sure going to try. And you know what you'll find out? That when you draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. And he'll keep bringing you closer and closer and closer to himself. No, no, no. You're not a robot or a dummy or, a, or a, a, any of those things. You're one that has to make a decision at every point. Do you hear me? At every point of your life, all throughout the day, you have to make a decision. And that decision is, am I going to obey God right now? Or am I going to try to delay that obedience and really not obey at all? And am I going to do it exactly like he says? Am I going to just take heed to the word of God? And if you say, I'm going to obey God without, uh, at first off, opportunity, and I'm going to do it just as completely uh, as I possibly can, even though I know I'll fail. I'm just here to tell you that God will draw nigh to you, and you'll begin to walk in a new way, and you'll begin to walk uh, in something that really could be described as normal on the Word of God. You do understand that God has designed a path, called us to a path, walked the path before us, because it is exactly what He wants us to do. Be like Jesus. But you decide. If you say this, preacher, I, I, you know, I think I'm mostly okay. That's fine. But I can tell you where we'll be. You'll be back at the next meeting saying, we really need revival. You know why? Well, there'll still be this gap. Let's just call it what it is. It's the obedience gap. You can do it. 
But if you keep doing what you've been doing, don't expect to get what you don't have yet. Or you can decide. All of us. Here I am. And I know that everything I know to do and be, I'm not. And tonight I'm going to confess that to you, God. And I'm going to commit my life. And tomorrow I'm going to get up. I'm going to seek you more. And whatever you tell me, from your word, I'm going to make that change in my life. Right now. Completely. Say, oh, preacher, just obedience, obedience, obedience. No, no. It is God, God, God. And His way alone. It is there alone you'll find the abundant life in Christ. It is there alone you'll find revival. It is there alone that you'll find what many of you are wondering if it really exists a fulfilling, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And all it requires of you is just do what he says and be who he tells you to be. And it's all written down. And the only obstacle between y'all and revival is this decision right here. I ask you tonight, do you really want revival? Because tonight you'll choose whether it begins to be a walk of our life going forward from this meeting or not. If we want revival, we better do some business with God tonight. If we want to stay the same, let's be honest. And say no to God. I challenge you tonight to walk on the scariest path you've ever been on with complete peace. Of intimate walk with God that is born in your life as you draw nigh to Him through obedience to Him. Stand with me. That the story might be written. What he did at the Red Sea and the Brooks of Arnon in St. Joe, Missouri. Whether that story is written or not is your choice. Father, help us tonight, dear God, help us. Help the one that's here without Christ to realize that it's a step of obedience that they need to take. Help the Christian that's here tonight that says, I really want my life, my, my walk with God to be different, to be more, to, to change my life completely, and yet I've struggled, help tonight, that, that they would just say this, whatever God says, I'll do. No, no, right now, not generically, that God, you've said this, and I'm not this, and you've said this, and I've disobeyed you, and you've said this, and I've ignored you, and tonight, all of those things would be laid on this altar, and they would leave here, having uh, taken the steps to draw nigh to you. And they'd be determined to walk in them. They would seek you tomorrow that they might be more like your son. And whatever you say, they would obey.
at the very first opportunity. They would take heed to your word with passion and precision from their lives. And you know and I know, Father, that when they turn to you, you'll draw nigh to them. And they'll begin to walk in a way that they never thought possible because they are with you. Help us tonight, I pray. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Piano's playing, the altar's open. I encourage you tonight to make a decision that says this. I want revival. I want intimacy with God. I want to go with him.